How many of you, how many of you remember this tune? <laughs> All right. Well, I, I, I just want to play a little joke. I, I was sorry about that, my sense of humor. But the year was 2007. Jeff Lawson built in, uh, an application that would basically rickroll people uh, through their phones. But it wasn't a prank. It was Jeff actually demonstrating his then-new cloud-based telecommunications service, Twilio. Five years later, Twilio is in some 40 countries. Its customer base has basically exploded by 400% in, what, the last year. Uh, 150,000 developers are using the service, which processes 1.5 million phone calls a day. Certainly, Twilio is growing at an amazing rate. I want to get into all of that, but first, please give a warm welcome to Jeff Lawson, CEO and co-founder of Twilio. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jeff, for being here. I'm really excited uh, to have you. And I just wanted to start off um, by having you give us kind of like almost the elevator pitch. What really separates Twilio from other technologies that are in this space? Um, what makes Twilio different from stuff like Skype, Google Voice, and all these other applications that sort of came before? Yeah, obviously. I mean, you know, telecom is not new. Right? Telecom's over 100 years old and, um, and has been around for a very long time, except that for a long time, it, communications was sort of like this notion mm -hmm. of, well, we have this network out there of copper and fiber under our streets, and then you could plug a phone into that, and that was what people considered communications. And so what Twilio was doing is building this set of building blocks that put the power of communications into the hands of developers to combine those building blocks into unique and interesting applications that solve business problems for their companies. Um, and, and it came from an observation that we had, which is, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a serial entrepreneur, and uh, this is the fourth company that I've started. Right. So I, I had started coming, uh, actually I dropped out of college and started three companies in a row, and, uh, and then went into product at Amazon Web Services. And when I left Amazon, um, I did so because I wanted to start my next company again and was looking at a bunch of ideas. And one of the things I realized was each of my three previous companies, at various points in time, we said, wouldn't it be great if our applications were able to reach out and talk to our, our users, our customers, uh, our employees, our vendors, in some interesting way that would create the customer experience that we were trying to create? Because communication is really fundamental to how we interact and how we do business, uh, both as consumers, with a business, or B2B, or all sorts of things like that. And every time we looked at building those things we wanted to build to create the communications experience we wanted, we found that the world of communications was not designed for software people. <laughs> right? It was uh, essentially... Um, you know, there are, there are companies, you know, first of all, there's like this very esoteric carrier stuff that's out there uh, that isn't fundamentally software. But then there were a lot of companies selling software that did various forms of communication stuff, like PBXs or call centers and all this kind of stuff. Yet there were these big monolithic applications. So the big hardware, big software, very expensive, um, very esoteric. And if you wanted to configure them, to mold them, to make them into what you wanted, that really wasn't what they were designed to do. They were designed to do the thing that they built it to do. Uh, and so as a developer, you say, what I want are modular building blocks that I can arrange to build the experience I'm looking to create. And nothing like that existed. And so that's why we started Twilio, is to provide that uh, level of flexibility of those fundamental building blocks that brings communications into the realm of software people. Because software people need building blocks to, to, in order to, to construct the experiences they want. 
And uh, that's why we built Twilio the way we did, as a set of APIs, uh, keep it uh, you know, a, a plurality of each simple building box that then you can put together in arbitrarily interesting and complex ways to solve business problems. It's, it, it's, 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 it's instead of just having, here's this huge big box of stuff you can't change. Let's give you all these little boxes and build what you need out of it. Yeah, and it's like, you know, you think about, uh, when, think about when you call a, um, you call your bank's mm -hmm. toll-free number, right? And, you know, the machine answers and it says, uh, you know, what's your account number? And you enter that. And they say, what's your mom's, dog's, maiden name? And, and you, like, answer all these questions. And then they finally get you to a human being. And the first thing that person asks you is, Oh, what's your account number, right? <laughs> and I, I mean, we've all, we all have had that experience, right? And it's because these systems that companies use fundamentally aren't for software people, um, because that is ridiculous to us software people. Um, what they have, what, what, what companies have been deploying are these monoliths, right? Big hardware, big software monoliths that don't talk to each other, that don't talk to other systems very well, um, and or spending the money to do that is so cost prohibitive that most companies don't do it, or they try to do it, but really the mediocre integration points that, that these monoliths have just don't accomplish the task. And so that's how you end up with these horrible customer experiences mm -hmm. based on monolithic software. And one of our fundamental beliefs is that you know we are in the age of software people, mm -hmm. capital S, capital P, software people. And that's not just people who uh, write software like you know, writing code. Uh, it's, it's more important than that. It's actually people have a fundamental belief in the power of software to tackle the world's problems. Um, and the way you do that is by uh, having these uh, agile, nimble pieces that you can composite together into solving problems. And, uh, and, and so that's sort of why, you know, Twilio's built the way it is, is because these monoliths are not built by or for software people. They're right? just built by the monoliths for the monoliths, basically, in that way just what they wanted to do, and this is what you get for the price. Yeah, exactly. And you see, you know, just like, you know, your iPhone. You can't open up your iPhone, right? I mean, right. Lit literally, you can no longer use or service this stuff. That's sort of how these big monolithic software and hardware packages are that traditionally companies use for a lot of different things, right? And that's why people, you know, they spend tons and tons of money on Oracle, right? Because, you know, you have to pay Oracle every time you want to change something, uh, you keep shelling out. And that's sort of the experience of big hardware, big software, um, is that notion of, you know, you install the thing, it does what it does. Yeah, there's a few integration points or a few levers you can pull, but for the most part, it just does what it does. And the end result for consumers is, uh, you know, horrible experiences. Right, right. And I, I kind of want to, you, you kind of touched a little bit about the origin. I kind of want to go a little bit back as well. And uh, I kind of want to first talk about the joke and the prank and why you did that. And, and, and Dave, even Dave McClure so, used it. So we were never, ever, ever supposed to be talking about that uh, ever uh, in the life of the company because it was just a uh, <laughs> not at all the use case that we actually want people to associate with Twilio um, because Twilio is about building business right. applications. Uh, absolutely. Um, but, you know, it was one of those things where we were building Twilio. We actually had, like, the alpha version of Twilio built. Right. Uh, and we, handed it, we gave it to a small handful of our alpha customers, like, you know, way, way, way in the early days uh, to get, you know, customer validation of what we were building. And so one of the things that, that I had built was, you know, the Rickroll <laughs> app, which was you, uh, I'm trying to remember, it was actually before we had SMS, and so you would email an address, and emailing it was like rick at twilio.com, I think it was, and it would trigger a uh, call. You would just email a phone number, and then it would trigger a call. And, and it was actually how I, it was one of the ways I described to my friends who were like, less technical, 
about what, what I was building with Twilio, right? And so we'd be at a bar and be like, here, I'll show you. And their phone would ring and they'd get rickrolled and, and they'd say, what the hell was that? And I'd say, well, that, I guess that's Twilio, I don't know. Um, but it, just, it just seemed like, you know, it was sort of funny and rickrolling was, you know, a thing in 2007. And, um, and, and so, again, we never really intended for anyone other than, you know, my drunk friends at bars to have that. And, uh, and I showed it to Dave McClure one day and he had, he had been an advisor to the company and then an investor. And um, and uh, I showed it to him one day, and he said, "Oh, that's funny. That's funny." And like two days before we launched Twilio, it was November, actually probably 18th. What's today? The 16th. 16th. Okay, so four years ago, Sunday, uh, <laughs> we were actually we were we were having sushi and and we were drinking, and we walked out of out of the out of the joint, and Dave was a little inebriated, um, and that's not uncommon. So it's like it's okay. He'll he's fine with that. <laughs> Um, and he said, hey, what's that, what's that email address for the, the Rickroll thing? And I was like, oh, it's just it's Ricky Twilio. And, and he says, oh, okay. And he pulls out his phone, and he's like, blah, 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 done. And he's like, yeah, so I just Rickrolled Mike Arrington, <laughs> right? And I don't know if you guys know, like, when you're launching a company, like, you have this very orchestrated notion of, like, what your launch is going to look like. Like, you have this idea in your head. It's, like, all embargoed, and nobody knows, and there's a shroud of mystery around what you do. Um, and then you like you have this you know you're, you're coming out and now suddenly you have a big splash in the media right and you have this notion of this is what a launch looks like, and uh, and then he rickrolls Mike Arrington, <laughs> and I was like oh sh sh you know because Mike's a little <laughs> uh, he's got his ways about him, and um, and I said well at least he won't know like what where that came from right, and and Dave says and I just posted to his Facebook wall that that was from Dave McClure via Twilio. I was like, oh. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, well, it's fine. I've got my meeting with TechCrunch tomorrow to brief them for our launch the next day. You know, no, no harm done. Ten minutes later, a post goes up on TechCrunch. I just got rickrolled by Dave McClure using something called Twilio. God, I hope it's more useful than this. <laughs> Meanwhile, we've got, we've got a, like, a placeholder site that all it had was our logo hosted on like Slicehost, you know, the tiniest, like, you know, four megabytes of RAM, like, whatever, like, you know, 12 cents a month kind of hosting. And, um, and it's really, like, huge amounts of traffic. And we're like, oh, shit. And we, like, we, we scrambled to, like, put a, a form up there to capture email addresses from all these, like, thousands and thousands of people visiting this, like, placeholder site. And, uh, and so that was it. And the next day we went and we briefed... Um, uh, we briefed TechCrunch, and then they, they wrote about uh, our actual launch the next day. Uh, so no harm done, and it turned out that it was actually great. Like, you know, Dave works in mysterious ways, and it turns out that that little PR stunt was a really cool way to kind of, like, you know, uh, set the stage for the, the Twilio launch a couple he, days later. He was pulling his Jedi mind It was. There. It was a total Jedi PR trick. Um, and uh, so, yeah, but, you know, we were kind of freaking out. We're like, oh, my God, like... We've like so carefully thought about our, our messaging and our like launch and how it's gonna be and like and now we're like the Rickroll company. <laughs> well, I, I want to. I actually do want to move move away from that and, and you know and get into kind of more of the early days after that launch. You eventually kind of raise like 3.7 million in your first round. You know, you've got David McClure advising, investing. You know, when was it that you guys actually first started looking at scaling and? And what were some of those challenges that went into kind of building this kind of almost new kind of way of telecom infrastructure that really 
sort of didn't really exist as much back then. So, uh, I mean, scaling the company or scaling the product or? Scaling the product and gotcha. then scaling the company after well, we, that. I mean, we built for scale from day one. Mm -hmm. So everything that we did when we built Twilio was designed to scale horizontally. Mm -hmm. We actually built, we're, we're built on top of Amazon, on top of EC2, and we built our own um, cluster orchestration system, we call it uh, BoxConfig, and uh, that was used to be able to scale out our systems. And you know, one of the reasons we did this is, uh, you know, I learned a really interesting lesson in my time at AWS. So my very first day at AWS, it was fall of 2004, and I joined uh, the company, and, and, they, and they, first of all, they wouldn't tell me anything mm -hmm. about what AWS was doing before, before I joined, big secret. So I joined and got wind of all the stuff that, that they were starting to build. S3 and EC2 were really the first two ones that were uh, really under development at that point. And um, so the morning of my first day, the S3 team had a design review with, uh, with Jeff Bezos. Uh, and it was supposed to be the final design review before a launch that week of the service. Uh, you know, like a beta launch. And it was designed to scale to, you know, I don't remember exactly what it was, some large number of terabytes or petabytes. I don't remember exactly what it was. Um, but it was like a beta that they were launching. And the team got basically sent back to the drawing board uh, the week of their launch because it was designed to scale, and they said, well, if this thing gets traction, then we'll re-architect it in a way that really scales linearly uh, with the traffic. And you know, the lesson learned was, uh, if a cloud infrastructure service uh, takes off, you will not have time to re-architect it. Um, and if you fall over because of scale, you're gonna put a nail in the coffin of cloud infrastructure. Right, because the whole promise of the cloud is scaling. And if you can't live up to that challenge, then you ha you don't, you, there's no point in the product in a lot of ways, right? And so the, the, the lesson learned was you launch with an architecture that will scale horizontally um, as your usage grows uh, because you just cannot drop the ball when you're an infrastructure provider. And, uh, and that lesson always stuck with me. And literally, I don't know if you guys remember, uh, S3, I believe, launched in 2007, mm -hmm. right? So they went back to the drawing board and rebuilt it from scratch and it took t over two years. Um, but an interesting lesson, right? I think, you know, Bezos is a really smart guy and, you know, I think we could probably all look back at the graphs of S3 usage and say he was probably pretty right, right. about that, right. that assertion, right? Right. So, so, to, you know, so we invested in scale or at least the capability to scale very early on and that's one of the reasons why we built on AWS. Gotcha, gotcha. And in, in terms of that infrastructure, you know, uh, and, I, and I've, I've heard you say it before that we're kind of moving away from these on-premises, these monolithic models of, of telecommunication and moving into this more cloud-based space and, and, you know, having this infrastructure that moves horizontally. How do you leverage that infrastructure to help with the scale and how do developers that work with your API do it as well? So, so our goal is that a developer working with our API doesn't have to think about, about scale at all. Mm -hmm. So the traditional model in, in telecom is this uh, per, they call it per port model. Mm -hmm. So you buy software, you install it on a server, you buy hardware, and you buy X number of ports, which means simultaneous phone calls. Uh, so you buy 100 ports, it means that thing can do 100 simultaneous calls. Your 101st person gets a busy signal. Uh, and that's how the whole world of telecom has been architected for 100 years. Uh, because it goes back to how many like pieces of copper in a, in a circuit switch network. Uh, how many pieces of copper do you have to carry a phone call that then go into a piece of equipment that then, so the whole system is, is designed around this notion of 
you're buying circuits. And so the new model that we envisioned was that you would, you know, what, what it meant to bring this to the cloud was that you would never pay for uh, a circuit or a, a channel or a port. You would just pay for what you used and we would scale as wildly as you need us to. Um, and, uh, and it does present some challenges because the teleco system that we interconnect with is actually largely still based on that model. Um, but then we expose an abstraction to our customers that does not present that limitation. Mm -hmm. And so one of a lot of things that what we do engineering and architecturally is we're bridging the gap between what we think makes sense to software people, which is, you know, I make a request to the API to say make a phone call, and I don't care if it's the first phone call or the billionth phone call, it should work the exact same way as every other, uh, every other request I've ever made to Tulio. And uh, behind the scenes, we're working with carriers who have this channel model and all this kind of stuff because they've invested in, they've bought gear that's in their racks that they bought on this channel model, or they laid copper that is, this, you know, the, the whole underlying legacy is in this model. And so we're abstracting. So we do a lot of things, for example, like um, we have uh, call queues, mm -hmm. right? So if we have, uh, 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 you know, 100,000 call requests and we have 75,000 call channels available via carriers, then what we can do is multiplex that and ensure multi-tenancy fairness uh, to all of our customers um, based on that. And so building multi-tenancy into a telco network really hadn't been done before because you didn't need it when you sold people channels. They said, I'm going to sell you a channel. Now that's yours. And I can sell another guy some other channel. And so you have a tremendous amount of waste in that notion because most of those are going unused, yet the guy who actually needs it can't use that capacity that's available because you didn't sell it to him. So our, our notion was, was pretty different about how to build a scalable system so that software people who use Twilio never have to try to wrap their heads around these esoteric uh, historical implications of how telco was built 100 years ago. Gotcha. So it's almost as if you're kind of being the, the bridge between that for these developers, so they don't have to worry about stuff like that, and it just kind of happens for them behind the scenes, but you guys have this huge engineering engine that you're like really plugging into it. Yeah, exactly. And, and figuring out the challenges of how do you bridge these two basically incompatible models of how you view the world. <laughs> um, and our, a lot of our engineering goes into how do you do that? How do you do it in a multi-tenant way uh, so that no customer affects any other customer? Uh, you think about it, like telco in like consumer space is not multi-tenant, mm -hmm. right? You get your cell phone goes, I have no signal. It's because it filled up, you know, the, the closest, uh, a base station to you doesn't have any capacity available, and so there's no such thing as that. And so our goal is to say, we're going to create that multi-tenant capacity on top of a system that is fundamentally not multi-tenant. Are we going to eventually see the change in that system, that we're going to see that old school kind of way go away at any point? Uh, yeah, possibly. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of investments made in the existing infrastructure that uh, powers it, but, you know, that infrastructure is more and more going to the world of, of voice over IP, uh, fiber optics and things like that that aren't essentially uh, circuit switch networks. Um, but what's interesting is I think that as uh, the industry changed from old model to the new, uh, from a technology perspective, a lot of people actually kept the economics, the business models of the old one, which don't make any sense to me. Right. So. Right. Well, speaking of that, I, I had another question before this, but since we're talking about the business models and, and such, I, I, I understand that uh, Twilio has a like a cost-based model approach. Mm -hmm. I was kind of wondering how that works for Twilio and, and how does that work in differential to some of these older business models? 
when it comes to like enterprise product and telecommunications. So it's, a, it's like a pay-as-you-go model that we have, mm -hmm. which is essentially you pay per minute for phone calls, you pay per phone number uh, per month if you, for mm -hmm. phone numbers, you pay per message for SMS. And um, you know, we did this because it aligns the use, it, it aligns your the how much you pay, it aligns your bill to Twilio very closely with your usage of it. And it's a, you know a few reasons. Number one, this is I believe the prevailing model of the cloud. Right, this is what Amazon has for S3, for EC2, mm -hmm. um, and this is the new model because it very closely aligns um, usage patterns with with uh, with what you should be paying, and. Uh, it also means that as, say, a developer building a product, you can experiment very inexpensively, you can build very inexpensively, but then when your thing scales, your build just scales with it, right? And so it's perfectly elastic along with what you're consuming. Uh, and that's ultimately the, the end game of all of this stuff. And any other business models in the middle are, you know, essentially ultimately going to go to this. And so we went straight to this. <laughs> just cut out the middleman completely and go right at it. And also another interesting thing about uh, Twilio that that uh, you know I've read about, and, and, and so it's, it's almost as if through the cloud you guys are creating a, a, an ecosystem, and you guys to break into international markets you're making partnerships with like AT and T, KDDI in Japan, and recently uh, Parse I believe, and I was wondering how these ecosystems not only help Twilio provide its service but also continue its its growth, and how this also leveraged for the product for the developers, or how, how the developers can leverage this with your product? Yeah, you know, it's, it's different cases and various things. I mean, the way we look at partnerships uh, around uh, distribution is just, you know, how do we get, we have 150,000 developers and companies using Twilio today, um, but how do we continue to open up the market, make it so more and more and more developers and companies can be uh, customers of Twilio, or at least, you know, reap the benefits of right. what Twilio can offer? And so part of that is by working with other uh, developer-focused uh, companies, you know, like Parse uh, or Microsoft Azure uh, we work with uh, to partner on their new Azure cloud, cloud offering. Um, because, you know, think about, about uh, you know, the Microsoft, you know, community. And, and historically it's been uh, sort of this, you know, over here is the Microsoft community and over here is the non-Microsoft community and then the arrows <laughs> sling between the two, right? Um, that's the, the history of that. And I actually think Microsoft is doing a lot to break out of, of that mode of thinking they are, right? They now support all sorts of open source software. They support PHP, Ruby, uh, um, uh, Node, everything else. Like, and so they're trying to break down those walls. Uh, and as are we, right? We are trying to reach into that Microsoft community, which is um, you know, historically a, a little more, say, corporate than uh, some of the people who, say, you know, go to hackathons and things like that. And so it's just a new uh, audience for us and a new audience for them. So it's a great way to cross-pollinate our developer communities. Uh, and then you look at uh, internationally, you know, KDDI is a great example of, um, you know, there's a huge demand in Japan for what we do, um, but, you know, the Japanese market is a pretty different one than the United States, and you really have to have a lot of expertise in order to succeed there, and so a very common way to do that is with a partner uh, in Japan. And so that's what we've done uh, in Japan with uh, KDDI, uh, their uh, web technologies group. Right, and, and is that, do you think that these kinds of ecosystems are kind of the new business model that, we will be like niche services that this service provides this, but we need this other service so that we can continue carrying our service rather than the monolithic kind of Microsoft kind of corporate model. Um, like over here you have Microsoft and Microsoft is designed to solve every problem you have mm -hmm. versus over here you're gonna have best of breeds of many things. Right. 
Yeah, I, I think the, the future is in best of breeds, personally. And I think, mm -hmm. look, uh, you see Microsoft doing that already. Right. right. They're now saying, look, it's not, we're not insular Microsoft world anymore. Uh, we actually believe in all these other technologies play a part. We're going to solve certain problems for you, but you're going to want to bring other solutions to the table. And so this is a very um, uh, you know, heterogeneous world of technology. Um, I think that is the future. And, and, and in, in terms of this, now that you're in 40 countries, you know, six continents, uh, how do you guys deal with kind of just the, the rapid growth of the company on the back end of things, the engineering, the, the internal stuff? I mean, where do you kind of make the decisions like, okay, you know, there was a VentureBeat article that said you guys hire like every quarter, you know, at least 20 engineers or something of that number. How do you guys deal with that kind of growth? Yeah, I think it was we have 20 engineering open recs, and they extrapolated that to every quarter you hire 20 engineers, uh, which would be great. Um, <laughs> hard to do that. I think there's some in here, right? <laughs> yeah, like you're all hired now next month. <laughs> that's that's a, uh, a bit tough. But, um, yeah, it, it's... I think one of the things that happens as a, as, a, as a founder, and particularly as a founder CEO, is that in the very early days, you're thinking a lot about the product. Um, and as you get to a certain level of scale, you start to give more attention to, well, the company is a product too. Hmm. Um, and you see, I think Steve Jobs uh, you know, stated somewhat famously that the thing he was most proud of wasn't any particular product, but the company he built that could, right. could sustain and build those products. And so you know, I give a lot of my, my thought to the company as a product. Uh, and the company as a product, meaning, you know, when you use a product, you have a certain experience associated with it. Mm. Um, you know, when you uh, unwrap your new iPhone, there's an experience around that. Um, it's got certain benefits. It's got, uh, you know, certain trade-offs, all sorts of things like that. And um, working at a company is the same way, right? It's a product. And you, you, you include things. You exclude things. You want people to feel a certain way uh, when they interact. Uh, a, a company should be easy to use like a product is. You know, I remember uh, you know, one of my first days at Amazon, I had to go through like reams and reams of paperwork to figure out the whole like healthcare situation, right? And it's one of the things I asked my team was, uh, you know, when we rolled out our, our health insurance like a couple of years ago, I said, how can we make this simple? Like how can we make it really easy for you when you come in to understand your choices and make a decision? And uh, it's an example of what it means to like create an easy to use company. Uh, but the other thing is uh, culture, and culture is something people talk about a lot uh, as it relates to company building. But uh, the way I, I've looked at culture, and our team has, is uh, the team is, you know, we've got 130 people now. Um, if you believe venture beat 150 tomorrow, 170 <laughs> on Thursday. Um, It'll be at like 240 <laughs> at any time soon, right? <laughs> yeah. December 31st is 1,000. Yeah. Uh, so... Um, Culture is the collection of people, 130 people out there making decisions every day. Thousands of decisions are made every day. And so culture is how you, as, say, a leader of the company, are confident that every one of those decisions is the right one. Uh, because in an environment where you say, uh, you know, people aren't allowed to make decisions, well, that obviously doesn't work. Um, you, don't, you, don't hire, you don't hire great people and then say you can't make decisions. Um, so in a lot of ways, it says, what is it that all those decisions uh, should add up to being you know, the Twilio way. Here's how Twilio would do these things. And that's what culture essentially is. And so for us, we uh, rolled out earlier this year what we call our nine things, uh, which are sort of like core values. Um, and we designed them to, well, you know, a few interesting things about that. Uh, 
so if you think about core values, most people think of core values as a thing on the wall in a nice frame with words like integrity uh, that nobody pays attention to. <laughs> Old school motivational posters and all that stuff. Yeah, well, you know, it's telling the uh, core values of Microsoft were identical to the core values of Enron. <laughs> we all know how that turned out, right? Yeah, it was like <laughs> word for word the same core values. And it, it, that's not a knock on Microsoft, it's just saying like, if they're just words on the wall, then you go about your, your day and you do whatever you want anyway. Uh, that's nothing special about that, that's not a culture. Um, but what we set out to do was to not just put words on the wall, but rather articulate the things that we liked and cherished and felt were fundamental to who we were as Twilio at a size when we started this exercise when we were about 50 some people um, to ensure that those things were maintained as we grew the company. And that's what core values meant to us is what, what is the common thread among us today that we like and cherish and when we are 10,000 people by February, um, <laughs> what, uh, what do we want to make sure is still here? And ideally in 100 years when our grandchildren work at Twilio, you know, they should have the same characteristics, right? And so when I say we articulated our values, mm -hmm. that's exactly what it is. You don't create them, but you articulate them mm -hmm. uh, because they have to be something that's already there. If you create them, then they're just nonsense on the wall. Mm -hmm. But if you articulate them, they're real. And you, all you're doing is stating what's there mm -hmm. because if you don't put a spotlight on it, you're at risk of losing it. Um, and so we did that, and we went through about a six-month-long process to actually mm. articulate those things, starting with an all-hands where we uh, broke up into teams and brainstormed what was our favorite part about Twilio or what's special, why do we get up in the morning and come to work every day, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And then we curated that list down to about 20 uh, and had a number of focus groups inside the company and really took it um, uh, uh, very seriously as this exercise of you know, mm -hmm. self-discovery. Right. In a lot of ways, it's interesting. Um, it's almost like you know when you're... Uh, uh, when you're a child, like you just start to run around and play. Uh, that's like the earliest stages of a, of a startup. Uh, when you're a teenager, you go through a whole lot of fits and starts of figuring out who you are. Um, and, uh, and that's sort of like you know, the middle stage of scaling, maybe the Series A state of a company, where uh, you might experiment, you might be figuring out like, well, is this core, is that core, is this important, is that important? But then you get to a certain stage past, say, your teenage years, and you are able to finally articulate, yeah, you feel comfortable in your own shoes, here's who I am. And, uh, and that's sort of the exercise we did, and we did that at, at you know, 50 some people is when we started that. It's like, oh, you can't almost uh, force a culture in a company before it even exists. And then when it starts to exist, you force that culture on them. And it's something that almost has to be bred with the company, grown with the company. It can't just be, this is it. This is what our culture is going to be. You know, here it is. Well, it's interesting. I'll tell you a funny story. We, we actually, very early on, when we were like eight people, I think, mm -hmm. we did articulate what we thought at the time were our core values. Mm -hmm. And we came up with these five things, um, continuous improvement, detail-oriented, lifelong learning, humble, and hungry. Okay, five core values, which are, which are cool. Uh, and, and we hired to those things. We, started, we, said, we said, these are the things we're looking for in people that we're hiring um, to join the company. And then a, a really interesting thing happened. I was at a, um, a Union Square Ventures CEO summit like uh, a little over a year ago. And they had these like unconference breakouts, and, and one of the breakouts was you know talking about company culture. So I chose to go to that one. I was chatting with a number of other CEOs, and I was telling them about our five core values. Um, and they said that's really interesting. That's very cool. I, and but if I have a question, if we were to ask any random employee of yours, uh, do you think they would know what those core values are? And I said, oh, well that's interesting. I I don't know the answer to that. Let's find mm -hmm. out. 
And so I called uh, uh, an app that, that we had written that actually you dial a phone number and it calls everyone in Twilio and dumps them all into a conference. So I did that. Um, and it, We're going to implement that here at Zurb, I think. You know, and like, I don't know, maybe, maybe half the people answered. Uh, and so I had like, you know, 30 or 40 people in this conference, conference room. And I said, hey, I need a volunteer. And so someone, someone volunteered. And I said, I'm going to call you back. So I called her back. And I put her on speakerphone. And I said, you're on speakerphone with, you know, about 10 Union Square Venture CEOs. And the question we have is, can you name our core values? <laughs> And she said, um, easy, um, simple, um, and she went on name of feelings. I was like, oh, that's really interesting. Because I was describing our people, right? right. Humble, hungry, all this kind of stuff. She was describing our product. You wouldn't describe our people as simple and easy. <laughs> That opens up a can of worms when you Indeed, do that. Indeed, it does. <laughs> it makes the holiday party a lot more fun. But, um, but I was like, that's an interesting disconnect <laughs> in that we had articulated these things that we called our values, but they only described people. They didn't describe our product, our customers, what we build, how we build it, how we interact with each other on a daily basis, how we talk to our customers, all sorts of things that these things that we thought were our core values, they just talk to the small slice of what it means to be a company, not the grander picture. And so that's when we set out to articulate our core values that would ideally encompass all the things we do. Right. right. Very good. Well, those are all my questions, and I appreciate you answering them all. And I want to throw it out to uh, the audience now in the last uh, 10 minutes here and answer some of your questions. So who's got a question first? Way in the back. So the question is, uh, essentially, how do we reach out to developers uh, to, to uh, market Twilio? Uh, great question. You know, when we started Twilio, a lot of uh, you know, investors I talked to said, it's impossible to attract developers. They're like this slippery market. No one knows how to reach them. And uh, so we took it as a personal challenge. And basically, we set out with, 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 with one mission in mind, uh, be everywhere, be awesome. It's sort of the best way to describe it. I think it's a Jason Calacanis quote. Um, and we just set out to be wherever developers are, we're going to be there. And we're going to be ourselves, because we are also developers. So we're not going to be there hitting people over the head with marketing. We're just going to be authentic. We're going to be ourselves. We're going to be there to help. And that's what it meant to reach developers. And so it meant we started going to a lot of meetups. Um, the hackathon thing kind of took off, actually, right as we were starting Twilio. And then we started investing a lot in actually helping people organize hackathons um, and then sponsoring them. Uh, and so we started just going to all these events. And again, we have uh, you know, evangelists who are developers. You know, so one of the big mistakes is to send a, you know, marketing people to a developer event. Um, and so we built a developer evangelism team that now numbers, uh, I think, over 10 people. And um, they're developers. It's just that from a career perspective, a lot of them decided that, you know what, I actually really enjoy interacting with people more than I enjoy spending my whole day like, in front of an IDE. And, uh, and so they're, you know, they write code, they're, they're, they're great developers, but they love the human interaction associated with developer evangelism. And so that's what they do. They go to hackathons, they go to all sorts of events, and they're just uh, honest and humble and uh, helpful to people. And as a part of doing that, they're introducing them to Twilio. 
that's the best way to do it, which is to you know, start with being a developer, be yourself, figure out where you would reach yourself, and then go there. Uh, and then it's also that's, that's offline and also online too. A lot of the communities developers participate in online uh, to be involved in as well. Stack Overflow, Hacker News, yada yada. Brian in the back. Yeah, nine things. Nine things okay. We call them that because like core values people barf at. <laughs> That's a great question. I mean, that's, that's sort of like the ultimate thing, which is you have to roll them into your day-to-day -day life or else they are at risk of just being uh, words on the wall. You know, one of the things we did with our core values is we made them, I'll just say we made them real. Um, so integrity, how, like people don't sit around saying, is this integrity? Like, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> am I being an integrityist today? Like, you know, I don't, like, I don't know. <laughs> it's like these words that just don't fit into your day-to-day -day life as part of it. So ours are very natural. And again, these, they bubbled up from who we are. And so ours isn't integrity. We say no shenanigans. Um, and you can, like, we can imagine what that means. Like, you know, and what's great, the perfect implementation of, of, of core values is when you hear decisions being made by teams that reference the core values. Right? And so you'll hear people talk about, well, should we do this or should we do that? And someone will say, you know what, I think this, that feels like shenanigans to me. Right? <laughs> and people don't say, that doesn't feel like integrity to me. Like, that just doesn't happen. When people say, that doesn't feel like shenanigans to me because of X, Y, and Z, um, then people are able to converse around those topics and make decisions. That's ultimately the goal. Um, we've rolled them into our hiring process. Uh, so that's one of the things we're looking at when we interview people is how do we think they fit into these uh, nine things. Um, it's part of our performance review process. Uh, so what you know, we ask employees, how do you think you've done at these? You know, which core values do you think you did a really good job at living this year? And which ones might you think you want to work on next year? Um, that's been a part of it. You know, we've avoided, like we haven't put the posters on the wall just because that sort of felt like you know, a blunt instrument. Um, we haven't done coasters or that kind of stuff. Uh, we have a, uh, an internal Facebook thing uh, that I wrote in a weekend called Basefuck. Um, <laughs> that's, uh, it was like when we, when we got to like 75 people, I started to realize that as people were coming in to the company, they no longer could like meet everybody very easily. And some people say, hey, you got to go talk to that person. Who the hell is that person? Uh, and so, you know, weekend project, I learned Python and I learned App Engine was, was one of the side benefits to me uh, was I built this Basefuck thing. And um, one of the things I built into it was you could give people badges to say like, hey, you, you know, you, related to a core value. You know, hey, great job, you know, draw the owl is one of our core values. I saw an owl drawn in the bathroom here. Uh, draw the owl, I don't know if you guys have ever seen the internet meme, the like Reddit meme, uh, how to draw an owl. Step one, draw some circles, and it's got like these sketched out circles. Step two, draw the rest of the fucking owl. <laughs> And it's got a fully like drawn like beautiful owl. <laughs> and, and to us, like that represents kind of what it means to be a doer or to be at a startup. Like your job every day is to figure out how to do it. Like there's no instruction book. If there was an instruction book for everything we did, it would be boring. It would already be done. Like if you have, if you want to work at a company where there's a process and a guidebook to everything you do, you go work at Boeing. Uh, if you want to invent the future where there is no guidebook and you just have to draw the owl, 
uh, you come work at Twilio. And so that's what we sort of adopted. That's one of our core values. Um, and so there's a badge in the base book, which is like, draw the owl badge. And it's like, you know, you could say, great, great job drawing the owl. Like, you just figured that thing out. You know, you took ambiguous information and made sense of it and, and shipped something. So those are some of the ways in which we do it. Next question. Yes, sir. So it's interesting. So, the, yeah, yeah. So, so what we do is we work with tier one carriers uh, to terminate and originate calls to and from their phone networks. And so it's sort of a business development exercise on that side, uh, because what you're asking is carriers to devote um, some of their switching capacity to uh, us as a customer of theirs. Um, and so that's uh, you know business development to create the relationships with the carriers that you need in order to have uh, uh, capacity in order to satisfy our customers' needs. And so what we do is we maintain uh, 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 like an order of magnitude greater capacity with our carriers uh, than what we typically expect we're gonna need at any point in time uh, to be able to handle those bursts, those spikes, all that kind of stuff. And was it from day one? Yeah. Yeah, again, so we've always, you know, and we, over, you know, our tendency for us has always been over-invest um, to make sure that we deliver a stellar customer experience. Uh, just like, you know, Amazon did. They said, we're going to spend two and a half years engineering this thing. And it's actually contrary. I mean, Eric Reese would, like, puke all over this, right? Um, <laughs> because it is contrary to the lean startup thing. But I actually think some of the notions of lean startup uh, are, I mean, a lot of it's great, and I love it, but a lot of it doesn't apply to the world of infrastructure. Because you can't, like, it's not like you put out a feature in an API and then a month later be like, eh, we don't like that feature, we're going to remove it. It's like once you put something in an API, for, like, forever. I mean, deprecating an API is really hard. Right? We still support our 2008 API. And in fact, until I think about three months ago, we still supported our alpha version of the API because we had two of our alpha customers who were still using it. Right? And actually getting two customers to switch off of it was hard. <laughs> like, we basically had to say, like, guys, seriously. And these are like friends of ours, like the, you know, the, the, the very earliest like, you know, private alpha customers. And, uh, and so it just shows how hard it is to deprecate things. And so infrastructure is sort of a different level of uh, scaling and forethought that has to go into what you're building, how you're building it, and the level of scale you're building it for. Because you can't change it. One question, if I may, jumping off that, how as a small company initially can you engage with huge carriers and ex expect for them, from them, you know, very 9.999 kind of SLAs, right? Yeah, it's one of the, one of the trickier aspects of getting Twilio off the ground. You know, one of the things we did always say, which was, um, we don't want to be beholden to carriers uh, in order to to be successful. And so one of the nice things is that there are laws that say carriers have to sell you capacity, right? Uh, and so to get started, there are things that you know uh, that occur in the United States that made it so that we did have an equal playing field in some ways that we could get uh, uh, time on their networks. There was a question over here. Go back to corporate culture for a second and your, your nine things or core values. I'm curious if you have anything built in to recognize that as you grow, that needs to be a, a living uh, document itself. Yeah, so here, here's what we said. So it is a living document and, and it isn't. Uh, so I'll say that if we've done our job well, my hope is that these core values are roughly the same in 100 years. Right? They don't have to be exactly the same, word for word. 
But it's not the kind of thing that you change every year. It's not like a strategic decision or a tactical thing. Like this is, this is the core of the company, and it very rarely should change. It's, it should survive, you know, employees coming and going, leadership coming and going, um, various product lines launched, you know, customers, everything. Um, that's the goal. Uh, so it shouldn't be too living. What we said, though, when we, when, we, when we finally rolled it out, and there was a lot of discussion, and I did a lot of focus groups just to hear what people had to say about our core values as we were drafting them. And, and sort of what I said when we launched it, because something like that always encouraged people being like, I hate that one. That one's stupid. Or can't we only have this one? Like, that's the only value that matters, right? And so there's no shortage of opinions on this stuff. Um, but what I said was, these are our values, and we're going to live with them for the next year. In one year, we're going to revisit, uh, we're going to see how they fit us for the past year. So what I sort of said was, everyone's going to have opinions, great. Let's live with these for a year before we start asking if, we, if there are any changes. Because otherwise, you can just keep trying to tweak them. An hour, yeah, I know. <laughs> All right, one last question. Um, you actually had your hand up earlier, so... You know, there's different, it's a great question. So the question is, uh, how do you balance like core values with like vision statements or mission statements, all that kind of stuff. You know, a lot of these things get a bad reputation uh, as like being just corporate BS. Uh, and, I, and I totally understand why, because again, words on the wall is not living them. And so our goal with anything we do is to live these things, not just put words on the wall. Um, and so whenever we do talk about these kinds of things, like a, a, like a mission statement or anything like that, the goal is to make sure that everybody is able to understand, grok it, and live that, um, not words on the wall. So it's never, you know, you don't just send a memo to people, uh, you know, here's our mission statement and communication, right? It's, um, and that's what a lot of people do. Like, that's what a lot of companies sort of how they view this stuff. And so we've been thinking about what is the role of a mission or a vision statement, but it's not communicated necessarily as such. It's a, it's a living thing that we talk about constantly. So we do a Monday morning all hands every week. We have for like four years where the whole company comes together Monday morning at 1030. Um, and it's part of that ongoing conversation that we have every week, um, which is why are we here? And it's just something that you reinforce by the things you talk about, by the things you highlight uh, for the company. That's really the vision. Um, it comes down to what is it, what's the conversation about? And at some point, you do want to articulate it so people can be able to, uh, you know, be able to respond or answer that question. Uh, but I think it's one of the things that's it's okay and encouraged for every person to have their own interpretation of what something like the vision is. You know, as long as it's roughly what, what the actual vision is. Um, but it's not like here's our vision statement and everyone has to memorize it kind of notion. But here's what we're trying to accomplish. And hey, you probably agree with that because that's why you came to work here. Um, and it's okay for you to have and encourage for you to have your interpretation, your personalization, like your internalization of that, because that's actually what, what keeps people, that, that's what means they actually bought into it, if they internalize it and actually have their own version of how that works. So I think that's sort of, I don't know if that answers your question. Very good. Well, once again, 
Thank you very much, Jeff. Everyone, warm round of applause. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Pleasure. Thank you. Um, and just to let folks know, if, if you haven't caught our former or past speakers, you can go to zerbsoapbox.com and listen to all the previous podcasts and transcripts, all that good stuff. Thank you once again for coming out. I appreciate it. Awesome. <laughs>